We're reading from Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thanks be to God. And my good friend Harold Walton is going to come and share with us this morning. I'm excited to hear what he has to say, and I'm sure you are too. Good morning, everyone. I think that's the third time we've said that this morning, but it is a good morning. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be with you. You know, when we were singing, and and I just love what I was hearing this morning, victory in Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's exciting what Jesus does in our lives. He takes us from a burden, a heavy burden life, and gives us victory. He lifts that sinful nature from our lives and gives us joy and peace. What a loving Heavenly Father we have, and what a beautiful Savior we have. From time to time, we have heard different testimonies given by individuals. Not long ago, Pastor Mike asked for volunteers that were willing to share their testimony. I was then asked to share mine today. Just as Ron read in Psalm 51, David's redemption My story, too, is one of redemption. Before I begin, a couple of comments need to be made. First, each of you have a story to tell. Most likely, 
Yours are far more interesting than mine. But this is my story. For me, there is a very exciting experience to share with you. Secondly, I do believe foster parents are important and necessary. But like everyone else, not always perfect. Just as foster kids are not always perfect. The reason I say this is that my comments may sound discrediting to foster parents. If you have been a foster parent or are a foster parent, thank you for what you do. But this is my story, and I will be sharing my view as a foster kid. I suppose a place to begin is always, where do you want to start? Well, I'm going to start with preschool a little bit, mainly ages one through five, or one through four, I should say. Uh, Truthfully, most of it, I don't have a lot of memory of it. Pretty young. But I was born on November 19, 1945. For some of you, may not even have an idea when that was. And others, pretty close memory. Anyhow, it was in Evansville, Indiana. I am the firstborn of six kids. My brother Mike is the next oldest, about 18 months younger. I am not sure when. But Dad and Mom moved from Evansville and bought a farm near Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Sometime after this move, my mother developed problems, the nature of which I do not know. As a result, Dad couldn't take care of two boys, run the farm, after which he lost the farm. So earliest memory. Now, I thought I'd play with this a little bit because I don't know if you've done it, but I have. How far back into my very young days can I remember. I've done that a few times, and I have three illustrations I'd like to just share with you because they are memories. Living in a rented farmhouse with our parents near Black River Falls, Mike and I were told to pick up our toys outside before the coming snowstorm. Well, boys being boys, we didn't pick up the toys. We got chewed out the next day after the snowstorm. How that happens. Another memory is riding on a train with our mother, which was crossing a large wooden trestle. Mike sat next to the window, enjoying the scenery, with her mother sitting between us. As for me, Mr. Afraid of Heights sat on the inside row, very uncomfortable. A third memory was living with our parents in a rented house in town. It must have been the summer I was three years old and remember playing with a neighbor boy making mud pies in the alley. Just some interesting thoughts, memories. After this time, Mike and I ended up in foster homes. By my age four, Mike and I were living with our foster parents in a white farmhouse. A lot of white farmhouses back in Wisconsin. But they were very nice. The foster parents were very nice people. I remember standing in the barn, barn haymow pushing out corn stalks with Mr. Eisenhart while he held me back to keep me from falling. I think the Eisenharts were house sitting, as the next memory with them is moving to a large farm where Mr. Eisenhart worked as a hired farmhand. This move must have been in late fall, as I vaguely remember, Mr. Eisenhart taking a large pile of leaves, and Mike and I are jumping in them. 
The Eisenharts were very, once again, very nice people. While still with them, but I must have been at the age of five when a new couple, Mr. and Mrs. Severson, came in a Model A Ford to pick me, to Mike, pick Mike and me up and move us to their farm. It must have still been winter as there was snow on the ground. I'm guessing about March. Spring and summer must have gone very fast. I don't remember much about it. Come fall, I do remember an issue about my starting first grade. Why? Because my birthday is in November. I was considered too young to start first grade in early September 1951 at age five. Regardless, I somehow was allowed to attend school. School was a mile away. It was a one-room country school with six grades in one room. Most of the time we were given transportation, except when the snow was too deep or when the, in the spring when the roads ran deep with mud. Here I note, want to note the Severson family was very good to us. They had teen and older kids of their own. Mike and I learned various responsibilities and rather enjoyed farm life, being able to roam around the open space. School days and years were interesting and went by slowly, as usual, for anyone of a young age. Even though this was a caring family, something took place that began a pattern of identity that seemed to carry through all the homes I was in. Not always was it the same experience. And at the time, being as young as I was, I didn't think a whole lot about it. Only as I grew older did I see events of this nature have an impact on how I saw myself. I understand why this event took place and honestly might have done it myself in the same circumstance. It was that every morning the Severson family would have breakfast together with their remaining kids at home, while Mike and I would remain upstairs in bed. One morning I thought it was considerate, and Mike and I went down to breakfast when the Severson family had theirs. We were later reprimanded and told not to do that again, as this was their family time. Wow. We weren't part of the family. It would later become part of the realization that although welcome in families, we weren't part of them. In early May 1957, Mike and I were allowed to go with, uh, home to our real parents. I won't go into all their troubles, but they were back together again, my mother and father, and, uh, and approved by the county child welfare system that we were able to live with them. Before Mike and I went home, our parents had difficulty living together, but managed to have two daughters, Betty and Lorraine, who were removed directly from the hospital to live with my grandparents after they were born. They remained with my grandparents all their growing years. I seldom saw them and never really knew them. We, were just start we are just starting to communicate after all these years. Also, before Mike and I went home, a boy, Tim, was born to my parents and was living with them. He was, I think, about two or three years old. Howard was born while Mike and I lived with our parents. That's all six of us now. Between the spring of 1957 and August of 58 was a complex time. The realization of living with our parents was good, but it was a very unsettling time. My mother had mental issues, and Dad was away on the road a lot driving truck. 
While I am aware families from time to time have their own difficulties, there was tensions and things happening that I won't go into. As the oldest, it was my responsibility to take care of and protect my brothers at age 12. One day, Dad came home from getting a haircut. His barber had a daughter in my class. The barber told Dad, Keep your son away from my daughter. Well, this girl was beautiful and talented. I knew she was out of my class. Based on what I heard, my dad was not well thought of. And to me, this was one more rebuff. In August 1958, my parents had their final divorce. Dad came home and announced all four of us boys would be going into foster homes. We either left that night or the next day. I don't remember. Shortly after, our mother <coughs> excuse me, left to return to Evansville, Indiana, her, her hometown and mine. She returned only once with permission to visit us boys. It was only for a few hours with supervision. When we left, we stayed in a temporary home for about three or four days. I remember the lady was kind, and I asked if we could stay with her permanently. It wasn't to be because she already had her own children and adopted others. I then asked if all of us boys could be placed together. The answer was not likely because few foster homes would accept all four of us. Finally, I asked if Howard, my youngest brother, and I could be placed together so I could take care of him. As it turned out, all four of us were placed in different homes. This was in August of 1958. I didn't see my brothers other than our mother's brief visit until my high school graduation in May 1963. From the remainder of August 1958 until March of 1959, a few months, about seven months, I lived with a farm family north of Black River Falls. This was a home you didn't mind leaving. The foster father was somewhat grumpy and difficult to please. The foster mother was rather abrupt. They had an adopted son, older than me, who was rather spoiled and sometimes, at school, rather abusive. Once again, while in this home, I learned I was not part of the family, but were to, were to only be housed and fed. One time after the evening meal, we were asked if we could, would like ice cream. Now, what growing boy turns down ice cream? Certainly not me. Only to be told the chocolate was for their son and I could have vanilla. At Christmas time was another rebuff. While nice gifts were exchanged between their family members, I received a comic book and a couple insignificant things of which I don't remember. But now I was starting to see a pattern that I could participate in families but didn't belong. In March 1959, I was moved to another farm home in a nearby school district. This home was the most difficult of all. It started out fine, but slowly changed. When I arrived, this home had a son and daughter and two other foster kids. As spring and summer came in, additional four boys my age 13 or older arrived. Once again, differences could be noted between family and foster kids. At Christmas, the foster kids received gifts sparingly, while the son and daughter were given extravagant gifts. One learned this was just the way things went. Foster kids were different. It was also in this home that we were told that once the farm began to pay for itself, they wouldn't need foster kids to help with the work. More than one hired hand could be hired, 
and able to do the work. We boys did work hard and often went hungry. Even though we worked together, the relationship between us boys wasn't the best, as each one looked out for ourselves. Twice, one of the boys ran away only to be returned. In the summer, while we were working in a field on a ridgeline above the farm, one of the boys looked out and saw a cloud of smoke. It looked like it was in the vicinity of where the barn should be. We all piled on the tractor and headed down to the buildings. The barn was on fire. Our foster parents had left earlier in the day to attend an auction to buy more cows. At this time, I had not yet become a Christian, and I remember riding on the tractor. I yelled out several times using the Lord's name in vain. I wanted to sound like an adult, upset over the situation. Well, the barn did burn to the ground. That night we had, as I recall, eight new milk cows added to the herd. Temporary milking facilities had to be set up, and milking was very late into the night. Rather than rebuilding, an adjoining vacant farm was purchased, and the herd was moved to that location. This was followed by a very cold winter. The hired hand and I would drive over before I had to get on the school bus, and we would take a nap in the warm car before starting the chores. One morning, my foster father walked over and caught us napping. It turned out to be a violent morning. While I received many, many glaring stares, I wasn't touched. But I do remember the hired hand being hit over the head several times with a large flashlight. It was rather frightening. I think the only reason I wasn't struck because to do so would have been major consequences for my, because of my being a foster kid. I was under the state of Wisconsin jurisdiction and not county. Sad to say, things only got worse. My foster father began drinking heavily and became verbally abusive and threatening. He was also neglecting the care of the farm. I remember telling my caseworker, or today commonly called social worker, of the situation. This was to be done in confidence, as I knew of the abuse, if my foster father ever found out. Well, by the time I got home from school that night, it was rather evident that the caseworker had also visited the home, which I am sure was to verify the story. And it was evident from the looks as to who had made <coughs> excuse me, the comments. Now I had no one to confide in, as I thought I could with my caseworker. All things continued to get worse. I was well into the stuff it inside, bury your feelings, and not to trust others. A short while later, a month or so, it was revealed that the difficulties continued to get worse and was then verified. So it was time to move on again. All of us foster kids were removed. I went next to another farm with a younger family. This home became my favorite, and years later when they visited Barb and me and, and uh, Linda in Salem, uh, we were able to tell them how much we, I appreciated them. Uh, they were the first home and only home I felt loved and belonging. They had three small children, the oldest being age seven when I left. I had arrived in the fall of 1960 and unfortunately was able to stay a short time. By spring 1961, both foster parents announced to me that I would be leaving as their oldest boy was concerned that I was taking his place as older brother. Now I regretted leaving 
How I regretted leaving this family, and it hit me hard. But it was an example of how getting too attached to a family can be be destructive because it may not last. Then on to another farm. As you can tell, there are a lot of farms. Of course, this was Wisconsin dairy country with little industry in the area. This was another young couple who had little, two little preschool girls of their own. I was treated well enough, but there were some struggles. While I could sense they cared, and while I lived in the home, I often felt like an outsider, more like a hired hand that couldn't be fully trusted. Never sure why, as I did my best to be part of and fulfill my responsibilities as a member of a family farm. In the spring of 1962, I was to move again. This time, the caseworker counseled me that he didn't have any more farms approved in the area for me to relocate to. I informed him I didn't want to go to another farm. The work was hard and endless, and I wasn't really part of any family. I had enough, especially when my classmates could work out, earn money, go to school, and I thought that was pretty decent money they were making while I worked hard and got a minimal allowance. Since I now had only a short part of my junior year of high school to finish, I wanted to spend my senior year in town. Life seemed easier when I observed city kids. I got my wish. My my last foster home was in town with an older couple and no children. They were nice enough as foster parents. I got along well with my foster father, but this foster mother had a sharp tongue and often frightened me. In my senior year, when I would explore possible careers or explore a future, the school counselor took little interest in me. At the same time, I was aware of the military draft and knew those drafted didn't have a choice of where they would serve in the military service. While I wasn't sure I would be drafted, I didn't want to take my chances. So in December 1962, my senior year of school, I went to Minneapolis to take tests and a physical examination preparing to join the Army. After which, I was told that as soon as I had my high school diploma, I could come back and be sworn in at age 17. I selected the Choose Your Career program for finance, which required volunteering for three years of service. At this time, I didn't think I had the academic skill for college or the financial means. Two weeks after graduation, I was back in Minneapolis and sworn in to defend my country. My basic training took place at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, June of August 1963, advanced training at the Army Finance Center at Indianapolis, Indiana, was from late August into November of 1963. My next transfer was to Fort Lewis, here in Washington, for 18 months until I left in May 1965. My last year in the Army was in Vietnam. Fortunately, I had good duty in Vietnam, returning stateside in 1966. Now, stepping back a little bit, without going into every nonce of good and bad in every home, before joining the Army, I had developed an awareness of don't trust anyone. You are to be seen and not heard. Stuff it down, forget it, and you're a Walton and won't amount to much. And that knowing awareness left me alone in the world. I had internalized a lot of anger, 
With a little of this surfaced while in the army, it did help me accept much of the discipline one must maintain in the military. Despite my past, despite statistics, despite all predictions, for me, they were all inferior to the power and love of our God through the working of the Holy Spirit in my life. Knowing my basic nature and who I have become would not have been possible without God watching over me and pleading with me to turn to him for help. But I still needed to surrender myself and will. Now comes the beginning of the exciting part of my life's journey. In the third grade, missionaries or Gideons, I'm not sure which, came to our school. One of the things was to memorize John 3.16. And memorize it I did. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But memorization means little if you don't know what you memorized means and how to apply it. While I did have hit and miss church attendance, a lot of missed Sunday school teaching, and even being confirmed in the Lutheran Church was all memorization only and made no difference in my life. But through the years, even in the early years of my military life, John 3.16 haunted me for meaning. Yes, I believed there was a God and even Jesus. This still had no impact on me, and I even looked at God as that big guy in the heavens who observed my every wrong and was keeping count. As I grew in my youth, my conscience became heavier to this reality. While stationed at Ben Benjamin Harrison in, in, in Indianapolis, I met a soldier who was going to study to become a preacher when he got out of the army. I explained my lack of understanding John 3.16, after which he, we had a lengthy discussion. In addition, he invited me to attend church with him off post. It just so happened to be Indianapolis First Church of the Nazarene. I attended several Sunday services with him. Then one Saturday, I was on the post wandering around and stepped into the NCO club. That is a bar facility for non-commissioned officers, but certainly of a higher rank than my private second class. Nevertheless, I was allowed into the club. I was the only customer and was served a couple of drinks recommended by the NCO in charge. Did I get lit up? I was way out of it. I remember the guys back in the barracks laughing at me and we were doing a lot of joking around. The next morning, my new preacher-to-be friend came by to take me to church. I was still out of my mind, and so he left without me. It must have been later that Sunday, preacher-to-be stopped by again to check on me. I was in much better condition. He then invited me to the revival services being held the next week, which were, we attended every night. C. William Fisher was the evangelist, by Friday night, I was getting interested in the messages that had not, but had not made any decision. At the close of the service, we had an had the usual altar, excuse me. At the close of the service, we had the usual altar call. Now, this was a very large church. I was near the back pew, about three or four people inside the row standing during the altar call. I remember thinking. Let's get this over with. I was shifting from one foot to the other impatiently. Now, for some reason, a stronger power than myself intervened. 
To this day, to this day, I do not remember moving across to those to my right and walking down that long aisle. I do not remember kneeling at the altar. I do not even remember praying. But something very powerful got a hold of me that began to change in my life for the good. I had made the decision to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and He filled me with His Holy Spirit. I literally felt the pain and loneliness of my youth and my past sins lifted from my shoulders. September 29, 1963, began a new life for me, which I am ever so grateful for. Jesus lifted me. Victory in Jesus. Remember the song? No longer have I felt alone, but have Jesus walking beside me every day. The past loneliness had turned into acceptance. So a question arises. If you can accept unconditional love now, why couldn't you during and after foster care? The answer isn't simple. While food and shelter were provided, emotional support was lacking. Multiple factors influence your ideas of self-worth, and being in survival mode leaves little room for love or stability to grow. You have no control of where you live or of belonging. Consequently, love, and especially unconditional love, was far from any thought. <coughs> Excuse me. While three years of military life was good for me, it certainly isn't the likely place to experience love. <clears throat> but of course, that isn't where the story ends. A new life had already begun in me. I now began to understand John three sixteen and seventeen. Just didn't come into. The, okay, here's something that came out of that thinking. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us. Jesus came to save and empower us. He doesn't look at us for where we are. He looks for who we can become. Jesus doesn't look to throw our sins in our face. He looks to cover them with his own blood sacrificed on the cross. But we must turn from our sinful nature and those things in our lives that would separate us from God's great redeeming and merciful love. Now for ongoing growth. Rest assured, my faith in life didn't change overnight to where I am today. In fact, it has taken 61 years and God is still working on me. All I can say is I must be a slow learner. Without needing to say it, my first sense of unconditional love began with Jesus coming into uh, my life. He accepted me as I was, and I felt his acceptance canceling a lot of loneliness and feelings of being inadequate. That relationship has continued to grow to my benefit through the years. There have been many fellow Christians along the way that have helped guide me in the growth, my growth process. These include pastors, other Christians, largely my immediate family, and the Holy Spirit with a lot of Bible study and prayer. It is important to remember that God works through faithful believers who have been redeemed by Jesus as Lord and Savior. There have been, a, been many that have a great influence in my life. Certainly the first began with Mr. Preacher-to-be. This was followed while I was at Fort Lewis and attending Tacoma First Church of the Nazarene, where a family invited me into their home on weekends, and I was able to witness a Christian family in action. 
I am ever so grateful for them. Then there were two very important ladies that came into my life, Barb's grandmother and mother. They were role models of caring and encouragement and support in many different ways. There have been and are several pastors whose messages of God's love and encouragement and guidance are essential. I must never forget all of those with whom I attended church and Sunday school, including yourselves, that have been examples of God's love and of acceptance and encouragement to me. Barb and I had met at Tacoma First Church of the Nazarene in 1964 while I was at Fort Lewis. Our relationship grew through correspondence while I was in Vietnam. We considered marriage when I got back stateside, but waited for a year to allow for any adjustment on my part, and I also wanted to turn 21. On June 17, 1967, we were married. Also immediately after my discharge, my active duty, after discharge from active duty in May of 1966, I began my college studies. Now this became a difficult time for both Barb and me while I was a student. I was spending my time working, in class, and studying late into the morning hours. Little time was spent nurturing our relationship, and Barb was often working and alone. At the same time, I still had a lot of baggage stored internally from my youth, which started to surface. I was often angry and could flare up at any time or response to anything. I wasn't upset with Barb, but she caught the brunt of it because now I could release my feelings. Barb was more than gracious and patient with me. Her love was evident. I finished my studies in December 1971. In May 1972, I carried our baby girl, Linda, to my graduation. As I migrated into my career days, I began a a serious look at my role as head of the family, as a husband, and as a parent. I was in trouble. Given my erratic upbringing and lack of positive role models, I felt most lost and inadequate in both roles. My decision was then to pattern the the corporate structure of the business world. I could be president of the family and give all the direction and correction of infractions as I saw them. This was basically the view I felt as I grew up. Well, it wasn't working. I could tell Barb was hurting, but again, she was patient and loving and supportive. I learned so, so very much from my wife and each of our immediate family who have never let me forget how much they love and care for me, irrespective of my shortcomings. But slowly I began to change. Through all of this, the Holy Spirit was working in me. I had been searching and trying for a long time to make a change in myself. I loved Barb and felt bad about my behavior. Eventually I began to see Barb as a partner in our relationship, not a subordinate. This has grown over the years, and our relationship has become beautiful. As for being a father, I have always said Linda taught me how to be a dad by her unconditional love. Some of the change came after watching other married relationships at church and seeing how some husbands were tender to their wives. But I give most credit to my patient wife, a loving daughter, and the Holy Spirit working in my life. As for being a parent, I had insecurities of being a good dad. 
We only had one child, and she has always been the delight of our lives and been a God-sent blessing. Seeing the person our daughter has become brings honor and joy to our family. But then our daughter went off and married Regan, one of the finest men I have ever met, and they have two beautiful daughters, Allison and Emily. With them, there are three generations of our family actively following the Christian faith. And if you include Barb's mother and grandmother, it is five generations. God has blessed me through my immediate family with their unconditional love, made me feel like one of the wealthiest men on earth. So I tell you all of this. The point is, a new Christian needs to be patient in their new life. Even when you fail, ask our Lord for forgiveness and keep on growing in your Christian experience. Do not give up. Let the Holy Spirit guide and fill you, but you must continually seek God's direction toward a holy life. As for those who have been Christians for a while, be patient and supportive to new Christians. When we see them fall short, be of encouragement. We need each other. After all, isn't that why we fellowship together each Sunday? Yes, to worship God, but also to use our relationship with God to support and empower each other in our faith. Yes, I have learned to experience and accept unconditional love. For me, it could only happen by accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and seeing fellow Christians living lives for Jesus and my family. Thank all of you for your faithfulness to our living Lord in your lives. Walking in our faith doesn't happen overnight. It is a lifelong growing experience. Jesus isn't through with me. I still have much to learn and grow in his likeness. Jesus hasn't given up and neither will I. I would like to close with reading once again John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but save the world through him. This next part you've already heard. I'm going to repeat it again because of its significance to me. It came to me as an understanding of John 3.16 one morning when I was having my morning devotional prayer. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us. Jesus came to save and empower us. He doesn't look at us for what we are. He looks for who we can become. Jesus doesn't look to throw our sins in our face. He looks to cover them with his own blood sacrificed on the cross. But we must turn from our sinful nature and those things in our lives that would separate us from God's great redeeming and merciful love. Thank you to each one of you for listening to my story. Remember, your love shows.